This podcast is intended for listeners that are 18 years or older. Explicit language, sensitive content, and views that are objectionable to some listeners may be present in the podcast. As such, listener discretion is strongly advised. Please read our podcast terms and conditions before listening to Up the Rabbit Hole. Welcome back to Up the Rabbit Hole with a Sex Therapist. This is Dr. Corey Harushka. And today, again, I still have my lovely assistant and our co-host, Brandy. Say hi, Brandy. Good morning. And today we have a new guest. And our topic today is purity culture. And we have Carla here who has not only some clinical experience in this area, but some personal experience in this area. So she's here to talk about some of those experiences and to help us answer some of those questions that might be outside of our scope. You want to say hi, Carla? Hello, everyone. Thank you for having me. So Carla brought in a joke because she said it wasn't related, but as I was thinking about it, uh, it, it kind of can be related in terms of lenses. And so um, why don't I just start off with our jokes? That seems to be our tradition. So one day a spaceship landed in a farmer's field and a Martian man and his wife got out and introduced themselves to the farmer and his wife. As a token of his friendship, the farmer immediately invited the Martian couple into his home and begged them to stay for the evening and have dinner. So the Martians agreed. Later that night, the Martian man explained how on their planet, it was customary to swap partners as a token of friendship. The farmer, not wanting to offend his alien neighbors, readily agreed. The Martian then man took the farmer's wife into one of the bedrooms while the farmer took the Martian woman into the other. When they had been having sex for about an hour, when the Martian man asked the farmer's wife, well, how do you like having sex with the Martian? Uh, how does it feel? The farmer's wife replied, it needs to be a little bigger around. So the Martian twisted his, ha- his right ear and presto, his penis became bigger around. About an hour later, the Martian man asked the farmer's wife again, how does it feel now? The farmer's wife responded, I think it needs to be longer. So the Martian man twisted the left ear and presto, his penis became longer. The next morning, after the alien neighbors had left, the farmer and the wife were having coffee at the breakfast table, and the farmer asked his wife, how was the Martian man? To this, the wife, uh, farmer's wife replied, fine. And how about the Martian woman? The farmer replied, The damn bitch kept yanking on my ears all night long. (laughs) And so I was thinking about this and it's, um, and it's very related to, you know, some cultural standards and perceptions and how, what you think might be normal might not be normal and how people will follow with things, which maybe they not necessarily agree with for the benefit or for the, the detriment of them. And so I think this kind of relates in some ways to, cultural standards, whether it be purity culture or not, it can even be to religious or even political views too. So do you want to tell us a little bit about your history in terms of how this purity culture became your interest? Sure. And then we can do some talking a little bit about kind of some of the educational components of this, the things that you want our audience to know about. Sounds good. Yeah. Um, I grew up in a evangelical Pentecostal Baptist family. And purity culture was a huge part of life, not just how you dressed or if you were saving yourself for marriage, but also purity of thoughts. 
And we uh, were very controlled by the narrative that anything that falls short from the glory of God is therefore evil. And any time that we are not pure to his standard, we become dirty and we become less desirable and less valued as, as even just a human being. So I grew up going to youth group, going to church and Sunday school where we would have these ridiculous activities with, you know, glitter on two pieces of paper and then you put them together and you kind of rub them and that sounds like a a soul tie as they called it. And then you put the pieces of paper apart and see that that piece of paper, both pieces of paper are never going to be the same again because they share that DNA. They share that dirtiness. And now that piece of paper will never be pure. Same thing with crumpling it up. I remember there being little stories about viewing women as like a used car after any type of sexual activity. Like I said, in my branch of purity culture, it was, it wasn't just the sexual activity you were doing or around. It was also about what you said, what you spoke. I remember getting in trouble about asking my friends about their love life when I was little because that was incredibly inappropriate and was about sex. So everything ended up being over-sexualized in purity culture to the point where every single aspect of being a human came down to purity and the roles that we were given by God, usually from the Bible, which was taken as inerrant and absolutely valid. So there was a lot of fun in working through those beliefs and the cognitive dissonance that came up from that. I struggled a lot with feeling that masturbation would end up being my detriment, that God would punish me for masturbating by making it impossible for me to get pregnant in the future or finding my future husband or whatever the case. So it's very fear-based. It's interesting because you mentioned that everything became sexualized and it's like as a sex therapist, you can almost, I can almost see that lens as well, but from a very different perspective, because Mm -hmm. when you're hearing, you know, sexuality issues and many things that you're talking about, you start making those connections from either a therapist lens or a therapeutic lens, or even just a, a playful sexual lens but doing it from that lens, from a puritanical lens, mm-hmm. just sounds like, you know, it's it's fascinating how the same kind of lens can be viewed so differently. So true. Well, this is so great that we're talking about this today because all three of us work with couples. All three of us work in the area of sex therapy. And this happens a lot on the couch, yeah. right? So being aware of what the religious background is and what that looked like, I find is extremely important. And I always will tell clients, I'm going to take a psychological perspective. Are you okay with that? Because a lot of times this does not jive with, with the culture that they were brought up in or religious beliefs. Yeah. Cause we got to take that health perspective with that psychology yes. lens. And yeah, sometimes they fight if they're still in that religion or that spiritual views, it's kind of taking what we say and trying to have them integrated into theirs. And sometimes it can't be, and that's the dilemma. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
So I'm glad we're tackling it today. Thank you, Carla. Oh, it is my pleasure. <laughs> All right. Should we talk about, uh, start with our questions then? Are there, are there any stuff you want to let people know additionally regarding that in terms of, uh, before we get into the questions, Carla? I'm sure some of the questions will kind of pull out more information as well. Yeah, I'm kind of blanking at the moment on what else. Yeah, because I, I think we were talking a little bit of it. It looks like kind of there's that sense of isolation and people yeah. minimizing or denying and blaming kind of issues. And there's that loss of autonomy that it sounded like you were feeling. Um, and maybe even just defining what gender or sexuality might be. Which oh, absolutely. Because that could be even, even those definitions are controlled. So you're absolutely right, Corey. It's it goes down to your identity as a human being. And, and unfortunately, it kind of paints young girls as sexual objects and in, in the kind of narrative that it's protecting them, but it's really not. So a lot of, there are actually quite a lot of similarities between rape culture and purity culture, unfortunately. Mm. The other thing too that I might mention is a lot of issues that involve sex addiction, porn addiction, those things we hear on our couch all the time of clients saying that they have a huge problem with those things. I'm an addict to these things. And from a psychological lens, that may not be true. I love that it's possible for those things to be feeling that way because of the conditioning behind it. And once we unravel and deconstruct that conditioning, we can actually understand that some of those urges, some of those desires, some of those behaviors are actually very normal and they've just been demonized. And we just kind of have to work through what's functional, what is healthy in terms of a pleasure and consent-based dynamic. Yeah, because I think one of the interesting things, too, because you, you know, you come from that history and now you're following through in that sex therapy training protocol. And so the the growth that you've seen and kind of navigated through this mm -hmm. must be just a fascinating journey. <laughs> oh, it's wild. It's a whole other world out there. <laughs> It's true. I mean, our sex education, I went to a Christian school my entire career. So my sex education was all abstinence-based and focused on reproduction. Nothing about consent, nothing about experiencing pleasure or how to understand and work with my body and other people's bodies. It was very controlled. So kind of unlearning or relearning new information that's actually accurate is quite quite a fun experience well i think that just as an aside uh, <laughs> that, that actually trickles down being a past teacher it actually trickles down into our education system having taught sex ed for quite a few years because that's mandatory it actually follows that it is all about abstinence and not a little bit about consent, it's changing a little, but uh, we really have to look at, I mean, we know what 14 and 15 and 16 year olds are doing, do we have that evidence and we have that, the science, and so we need to perhaps look at it in a different way. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. You want to start, Brandy? We'll start I with sure our can. questions and then we oh, can- Oh, we've got some, in. we got some great ones today. Are you ready for this, Carla? I'm so ready. Excellent. Uh, <laughs> question number one. I grew up in a Baptist church youth group 
steeped in purity culture and body shaming. Got married after college to a wonderful man who also grew up in it, but didn't internalize it as much as me. I'm frustrated because I've never been able to talk about sex or initiate it without feeling so nervous, downright scared, or fear of rejection. It's gotten worse since having kids, I guess, because there's so much else going on. I'm always tired and preoccupied. My husband isn't much better. Neither of us is comfortable talking about it. Any advice? Oof. Hi, friend. You're in good company. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of people feel like this. And there isn't like a manual for dummies on how to communicate effectively about sex, which is a vulnerable topic, especially when you've been raised in that culture of this is actually very taboo and your role is very confined to the definitions of what's acceptable based off of the doctrine that's been like given to you. Um, so oh, I'd say having a moment to reflect on what your true values are and how you want sex to be explored in your relationship, aside from what you've been taught it to be that's an important step in figuring out your autonomy, in figuring out what you're comfortable with, with sex, with your own body, with what you want to explore of your partner's body. It's kind of peeling back the layers of the onion to get to the core of who you are and what is interesting to you, what feels safe, what isn't. And then maybe even talking with a therapist or trusted friends about some strategies for talking and bringing that up in conversation with a partner because it, it can be really scary to do that but the more you break the ice and start to say hey what is your perspective on how our relationship should look like sexually what are some things that you've maybe fantasized about before that we can talk about safely without feeling threatened. Carla, I know you mentioned there's no sex book for dummies, but actually I remember I, I was looking for it on my bookshelf here. <laughs> I think Dr. Ruth Westheimer, I think wrote a book called Sex for Dummies. Oh, well, there we go. Yeah, I stand yeah, corrected. Yeah. <laughs> like where the heck did I put it? So that, yeah, so the manual, because this sounds like also in Brandy's realm of this, this partly sounds like we need to get that education component lined up. Yes. And oh, yeah. what resources are available for that? And then the question is, how do those sexual edu educator resources compare with maybe that Baptist church lens resources and how are they compare and contrast? And so I'm thinking that it's really information uh, important for them to get a good diverse perspective when they're kind of learning about this first so they can get educated. Because I'm curious what their education was regarding any of this stuff in the past. I'm also curious about their communication style. How do you communicate normally? Uh, are you able to speak about, are we going to buy a car together? Uh, are we going to talk about your goals together, your goals individually? What does communication look like as a whole? And then sometimes uh, what I have used, which is a great resource here that we have at Insight Psychological, is called the Yes, No, Maybe. And when I'm working with um, people from a religious background, I truncate it and just start with the body um, boundaries. 
So like, I'm okay if you kiss me. I'm okay if you hold my hand. Are you okay if I, you know, touch your bottom? But it starts just with body boundaries a lot, just to say I'm okay with this and I'm not okay with these other types of touches. Just so we can have a starting place um, of where to begin to start having the conversation. Because sometimes we really got to deconstruct it and break it down into smaller components because we can't just sometimes jump right in and go, hey, let's talk about sex. Won't this be wonderful? Because there is that fear of rejection or embarrassment or shame or guilt or whatever the person can be carrying. Absolutely. I think also, like Corey said, getting into the education with with sexuality and gender is really important too because the definitions of those in religious contexts are very rigid. They have, they're laden with expectations. So the shame that goes along with those expectations is, is often what comes up as fear in those kind of questions that we, we might really want to ask but feel like we can't. I know um, from a sex therapist perspective, yeah, like I said, my first rule is educate, 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 because I want my clients to be well-educated in all the perspectives. And then they can start choosing what fits for them once that happens. Absolutely. If we look at the cycle of religious abuse, it starts with tension. And that tension is basically when a member is indoctrinated and trained to conform as fear of displeasing God or spiritual leaders. And then it moves into the incident which the member is shamed, punished, or publicly humiliated, which can be done in the context of a relationship. And then we have reconciliation, which is where the member is blamed or invalidated and encouraged to forgive and reconcile. Then we have the calm, which is where love bombing can sometimes happen. And we have that feeling of belonging and promises of unconditional acceptance, which reinforces the continued cycle. I know I've worked in the past in some cult cases and, you know, so there's some, some interesting similarity of what you're talking about uh, with, with those cases. Mine weren't those sexuality related, but yes, so there, there, it sounds like some interesting similarities. Mm-hmm. The, the other one that I was talking about, because she mentioned that they're not comfortable talking about it. And for me, I guess one of the big advice components is practice, because yeah. that's one good thing about a therapist is the non-judgmentalness dynamic. And just when my clients are coming in, it's just me being able to talk comfortably about it sets a stage for them to being able to be comfortable talking about it. And then we repeat, repeat, repeat. And then they get comfortable asking any questions that they may have been afraid in the past. So that's that's the other one that I noticed that stood out for me. One thing that I kind of learned as a strategy to begin those difficult conversations is by going to your partner and saying, I'm going to make myself vulnerable to ask for something from you, knowing that I may or may not get what I'm looking for. And that can sometimes break the ice as a way for us to say, listen, I'm asking your consent to go into this topic that I'm feeling uncomfortable with, but it's important. Do you have the space to hear me out, knowing that you may or may not be able to provide me with the answer I'm looking for? Cool. I think we beat that one to death. We did. (laughs) (laughs) Question number two, then. Um, I, the writer being a 22-year-old female, was raised in a strict purity culture type of household. I have very little relationship experience, and I'm somewhat 
scared of sex. I want to experience true love one day and have some mind-blowing sex among that, but the thought of losing it to the wrong person one day almost terrifies me to the point of never doing it. How can I get over this hurdle? Okay, we're talking about the myth of losing virginity. In purity culture, we're taught that sex is a gift that you give to one person alone, and that is the gift of virginity. And that is the be-all, end-all of the perfect relationship and connection. And it's supposed to be very much mirroring the, the connection that Jesus and God have with the church. So we have this myth of losing virginity. If I have sex with you, I'm giving myself to you. I'm losing a part of myself to you. And that just simply is not true. We do not lose a part of ourselves. In fact, we gain experiences. Well, there's a lot more sharing going on in this experience from what you're talking about than giving up of something. Yes. Because in, in essence, males too have that same lens in theory of you know being a virgin or not and what happens when they give that. So everyone's losing, no one's gaining. What's going on here? <laughs> That's right. That's right. So a nice way to actually reframe that is by referring to your first sexual experience as your sexual debut. Because we we all know those really work out on that first time. Just wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) If only it were that easy. And there's that (laughs) that image of, you know, if you wait till your wedding night, everything's going to be perfect. The stars are going to align. You're going to both have orgasms and it's just going to be fantastic. Meanwhile, you've never been taught what the parts do and how they work and no one's ever touched them. So it's like, let's start up that engine and see where it goes. And why is it not working? Recipe for disaster. So I've had some cases, yeah, where where really we have vaginismus experiences on that first round because they've got that anxiety, that tension, everything just shuts down, tightens up, and like not nothing's happening. And this is supposed to be your wedding night and this is supposed to be all perfect and or penises don't function under stress either. So it's just like, usually it's more of a dumpster fire. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, it is. And I'm sure we all have worked, I mean, with those clients who, you know, they've been married for over a year and they still haven't consummated because of the fear of it being uncomfortable, it hurting, and they're mostly women in my experience. And it's just a hard no. And so you try and look at the lens, you know, is what is the fear? What is driving this? And it's really, really, they, they really struggle. And so with that clenching up and that vaginismus, we do have things that we can do for that, whether it be pelvic floor exercises or whether it be dilators, lube. But a lot of these people do have religious backgrounds and they don't even know how their own body works. And the fear is so intense, they don't even know if they can get to a point where they can have sex. So We have to really, while working with clients, consider what that looks like and how we can engage and kind of calm those waters from a psychological lens to be able to move forward. I don't know if I mentioned it before. Brandy might remind me. I think I'm getting old and my brain is starting to lose things. But I I had to work with a couple one time where they literally didn't know how to have sex or where to put their parts. Yeah. And so I had to physically, well, not physically, I had to show them through visual diagrams on what parts go where and literally how to run that. Yeah. And recommended, you know, some video material for them to look at so they can go, this is how you do it. 
uh, this is how you make a baby because that's where they were kind of aiming for and but they were very very like un untaught uneducated in anything to do with sensuality sexuality or even how to procreate so we ask but the key to you know mind-blowing sex is practice and trial and error and you know reading and understanding and educating this takes you know lots of practice to get up to that level and connection do not forget about connection we can have great sex with without connection but we don't have mind-blowing sex without connection and that makes a big difference that's true i think that was supported by yeah peggy kleinflatz in her book of you know magnificent sex that's one of those key components is it's not technical it's the relational component and how you dance through that together. Technique is like number 10, I think, on the list. All the other components before that add to that magnificent sex lens. It's a great book to read. Also, Emily Nagoski's. I know I keep talking about <laughs> no, every single would... episode, but she also endorses that you can have good sex, you know, without connection, but great sex with. So come as you are. This does another. <laughs> we got to get her on here one day. Yes, fangirl. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, those, those two things really make a difference. And managing expectations. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's get used to adjusting our expectations, maybe, shall we? No, I like that. That's a good one. Yeah. I think that like that true love that we all kind of were raised to look forward to just is kind of a myth in and of itself that it's possible for us to have fulfilling, wonderful experiences and relationships with people who are all over the world. And it just is a matter of who you connect with. It's not that there is necessarily one single soulmate to save yourself for, but it's possible for us to have meaningful, wonderful connections with a lot of people. I guess the question comes up, if you grow up in that purity culture, what happens if that one person that you've given your virginity to that is supposed to be perfect Mm -hmm. ends up not being so perfect in whatever way and now where do you go like what what's the next step when you're you're done now you're like uh, either they've been abusive or uh, predatory or just not not really a good fit in terms of principles and you know what you what you believed absolutely and that's where a lot of people fall into that shame pit and find it hard to dig themselves back out I think I remember one case it was yeah she she got pregnant accidentally during you know one of her first times and she viewed herself as like worthless garbage now no one's ever going to want her because she came from more from a fundamental belief system and so it impacted her mental health her self-esteem her value and she was a very smart attractive female that had lots of possibilities but she almost refused to take any of those because of that lens contaminated her Exactly. You can't even see the possibilities, the, the options outside of that lens. So, so yes. Lots, lots of work that we can do around this, I think. Absolutely. Deconstruction is so important. Yeah, I like that. Third question. I have a, this is not me speaking, by the by. <laughs> <laughs> I have a 17-year-old niece who previously told me she was an atheist and a fierce feminist. Lately, she's in her first big deal relationship, and he's religious. I'm completely fine with that because I do not believe in sheltering kids from religion, and she shouldn't, oh, and she should have experiences that push her to understand and articulate why she believes or doesn't believe something. 
However, I do worry about the potential harm he could be doing to her with any potential purity ideas he might have. When I was young, it was a really common belief that oral sex was not sex, putting girls in a situation where they were constantly forced to give blowjobs and not receive much in return or painful, sloppy anal. And so this made me wonder what sort of beliefs around sex are popular these days and how can I help her? What was that? There was a, oh, God's crap. There was a song that these girls are singing. God, God secondary. So anal sex was the option because it doesn't violate any of the virginity rules. And I know in South America, that's one of the lenses. But uh, I was watching some comedy show and these two girls are like um, God's exception or something like that. Have you guys seen any of that? No, but I want to. I have yeah, not. Huh, huh. I'll see if I can kind of find it around. That'd be great. Yeah, there are all kinds of loopholes that we like to find where, yeah, I I remember asking my stepmother when I was, I don't know, 14, 15 years old, what's the difference between oral and anal sex and traditional sex? And the answer was, well, oral and anal sex are not the actual thing and are watered down versions of what God intended us to experience. And I'd ask that question wanting to get some actual education so that I wouldn't have to go to the internet and find out, but guess what I did? (laughs) Shocking. Yeah, yeah. Brandy, you have teenage girls, don't you? What are the popular beliefs around sex these days with the youth? (laughs) oh wow Um, (laughs) yeah so it's a little difficult because myself and my children do not do not come from a purity culture so I can't speak to that component but what I do know and it's probably more than I'd like to know sometimes ignorance is bliss but honestly there's a lot going on and it's starting at a younger age there has been just brought to my attention anyways a lot of pressure and there is a lot of digital penetration even when girls are not wanting that the kids are getting into filming themselves and putting and either sharing and putting it on social media oh yeah the the, the, snapchat that's that's now the crazy thing of you know dick pics and you know vagina pics that are sent you know and with underage individuals and the laws attached to that yeah, which is becoming really problematic. I know of one case that is it's going to court right now because it was actual penetrative sex and it was filmed to underage students. There's a lot of pressure being put on girls and consent is not always being either obtained or listened to. So Um, There is more aggressive behaviors towards women that is not okay. And uh, it's going, it's flying under the radar, except it's showing up on things like Snapchat and it's being shared because that's the the magic thing goes away in 24 hours. And so it's really quite, quite difficult with Mm. that. But in regards to, you know, I don't think many kids, my children's age being 16, 19, really care about. Uh, where you are on the spectrum of of sexuality, like they they've got friends who are bi, pan, gay, trans. That that doesn't really matter to our younger kids as much anymore. But that there is very much a culture of aggression still going on, which is 
extremely disheartening to know about. Yeah, you kind of bring up that covert coercion that's yeah. pretty common these days because, I mean, I I didn't learn the actual holistic definition of consent until I was in my mid-20s. So I can't even imagine what's being reinforced today. Yeah, and girls aren't really talking about it much. They're not taking it to higher up. And I, I mean, I know of one part, I just know too much. I know of one particular case where it was taken to a higher up administration-wise and the girl was told, well, you are wearing tights. Like, how do you think the boys are going to react to that? To which I'm just like, man, this is at the time of 2022. Are you kidding me? Like, it was a little... It's still pretty prevalent. Right? And so I think in regards to this question, those are kind of the things that are are going around. But, I I mean, I think, Carla, from a purity culture type Mm -hmm. of issue, I don't, I can't speak to if there's going to be pressure for oral sex or anal sex. I don't know. I think there's this overall pressure with our young people Mm -hmm. these days. And then on top of that, they are, they're recording. There's there's a lot more hookup culture now that I've noticed with my teens too. So it's just Mm -hmm. like you you go on and you just do a quick hookup or you do a bunch of hookups because that's just socially acceptable in, in that, that lens. The, the video that I was looking at, if you guys are interested really playing it, it's called A Loophole. I think it's subtitles by Garfunkel and Oates. So it's uh, two women who are doing kind of comedy sketches. And so they actually created a song that's making fun or playfully looking at The Loophole, which is, it, it was done very, very well. Yeah, I think overall we need to educate both our young ladies and our young men really about consent and what that looks like and what it means. And I think we need to, in regards to our young ladies that, you know what, if you feel pressured to have sex, you need to tell somebody you need to get out of that situation as much as possible. In regards to young men, I think we need to educate them in the fact that there are safety issues that men never need to think about ever that women are constantly thinking about. And I mean, this needs to, this is education that they need to learn that when no means no, not, oh, well, what about, what about, what about, not that pressuring, it just flat out means no, no, thank you, please stop. We need to really teach our young men how to be respectful, I think, and what consent is. Consent is not maybe, consent is not, I'll think about it, consent is not, all right, I guess so, consent is a fabulous oh, hell yes, we're doing this. Let's get this on like Donkey Kong. That's, it, it has to be emphatic consent. Otherwise, it's no. That's right. That's right. And I'll, I'll add into that too, that in the purity culture lens, we have responsibility and accountability that is grossly placed on females. I went to Christian boarding school and I was told that we, the females, were responsible for making sure that we don't hug the opposite sex, because if we do, our sex organs are internal. Their sex organs are external. So we are more responsible for self-control, and it's our responsibility as sisters in Christ to help our brothers in Christ remain pure from lust and impure thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> 
anyone can giggle. And so then we have that kind of covert coercion come in where, you know, you're making out, you're holding hands, whatever, you're a teenager. All of a sudden, biology happens and you have blue balls. All of a sudden, that's now somebody else's responsibility to fix. And then we have the negotiation of autonomy. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. So, and you know, that's just my, that's just what I know. And the pressure sounds very intense because I mean, based on faith, you can't even prove it so well. It's kind of, that could be twisted depending on who is teaching it as well. And it is, it is people in power take advantage of that. Well, and just to throw a wrench and things, here's the other thing that I've heard of I don't know of any particular instances, but I've also heard of in the name of religion, if there is somebody who is not cisgendered heterosexual, that the church will actually okay sexual assault to bring them over to the other side, cisgendered, so to speak. But that's that's okay. So then then where do we go from there? How do we process that with the client if that has happened? In the name of religion, this has happened so we can make them heterosexual. Right. Yeah, that conversion uh, or correction, overcorrection to realign to the value of the greater group. Mm -hmm. One more question. One last question in this area. One last question. Okay, moving it on. Um, I am a 42-year-old female and was raised by a pastor. I was the only kid in my sixth grade class that was not allowed to get sex ed. I was not allowed to go to any school dances. I was forced to go to days long purity seminars and wore a tiny gold key on a necklace. I was to save the key to give to my husband on our wedding night. Even now at my age and married, I still feel shame about sex. I wish I could quote unquote, let myself go and enjoy, but because of the upbringing and freaking purity culture, it's like sex equals shame, but I do have hope. I just started the deconversion process a few weeks ago. My friend who is enjoying watching the wool come off my eyes, (laughs) I am in the angry stage. Wonder what's next. Oh, all the good stuff is coming. Yes. I'm the person usually seeing that wool come off of people's eyes when we come mm-hmm. in. So it, it is a, I mean, I think that's one of those things that I really enjoy about being a sex therapist is when people want to have that wool taken off, just the, what they start to see and the whole, like I've had clients come to me crying, thanking me profusely for just, to me, what would be just simple, basic stuff, but it just opened up their lens and got rid of the guilt and it allowed them to kind of be healthy sexual people. But yeah, those are very touching moments. Absolutely. But what's next what, for, for them? What, what's your thought when she says, wonder what's next? Any, any thoughts from what you? Me? Yeah. What do, yeah. What do you think we'd be expecting from, from them next? Well, we're deconstructing true love waves, um, which I'm sure some of our listeners have had experience being exposed to impurity balls and stuff like that. And so the what's next is making some space for that anger and allowing your reaction to come up so that we can actually work through those emotions. 
and deconstruction is ultimately what happens next once we have safety and we start to build on your sense of autonomy. This gets really interesting that I just had a trigger thought because I've had other clients who you mentioned the words that just triggered me, which is the true love waits. And yes. so I've had clients where, nope, that's not true love. Nope, that's not true love. Nope, that's not true love. And they're, you know, in their late 40s, 50s, they still haven't found their true love. And therefore, they're still waiting for that opportunity to kind of embrace this. And it may never happen given yeah. the rigidity or that lens that they have that they're walking with. Very true. I think that reconnecting with self is really important here for what happens next as well. Exploring your identity, your values, your roles, apart from the group, apart from the faith. Normalizing having likes and dislikes and being self-affirming, which is in fact considered a sin in a lot of different religious circles. So a lot of times we've been actually conditioned to dishonor our bodies by not listening to them or recognizing our bodies and our flesh as sinful. So kind of beginning to explain, Corey. <laughs> You're watching my, like, I'm just like, all these images are flashing of old clients in my head of, you know, yeah. just the, you know, having an impure thought, quote unquote, or, you know, seeing someone in a skirt and having desire and now mm -hmm. thinking that, oh, I've just sinned and now I'm going to go to hell and down that whole little rabbit hole. That's why we're trying to bring them up from that rabbit hole, you know, but it's, and just because, and there's, and these are natural responses mm -hmm. to seeing things desirable or of interest or even biological, bioevolutionary stuff but they're fighting with their biology with the religious lens or spiritual lens. And that's causing this in whole internal disparity and this conflict yeah. and the guilt. And there's not a thing they can really do about it. This is just a natural response. Absolutely. The eternal consequences that cause that fear and anxiety really kind of stems as the root from a lot of this fear and those false dichotomies that cause shame and judgment ultimately block any other form of truth, which is really sad and unfortunate because we're so disempowered by that. And we tend to only come online when we notice submission or victimization at times. So working through the causes of guilt and coercion in order to reconnect with yourself and others that redefines how healthy relationships look like is, is really where the work is. So I guess for next, I'm hoping that, you know, hopefully it's wonderful stuff that, that she's going to be kind of going there. Yeah. And, you know, but it might be a bit of a struggle and she'll have to work through it. Absolutely. So, yeah. You know, be aware that there's possible risk for re-traumatization and safety risks. People like to sometimes take advantage of vulnerabilities. And when you're working through these things, it's important to focus on what, what is right for you, what's safe. And yeah. So this goes beyond just sex therapy. And so I think this is why we brought you on is, you know, this requires not only a good sex therapy lens, but someone mm -hmm. who has a, a much greater knowledge in this focused area in terms of either religious and or purity culture, because, you know, 
I'm not going to be able to understand that same level of depth or experience that you would in this circumstance. So it's, it's really important. So this allows for individuals to be able to see and know and, and find out a professional if they need it to go work with them and make sure that they're mm-hmm. looking for those components. Because they could go to a therapist who is very fundamental and could support those lenses mm-hmm. as well, which is the other, the other lens. Well, I think the great thing too about you, Carla, is that not only do you have this lived experience, but you also have a trauma background. And even though this doesn't define necessarily, or it might, you know, the actual definition of trauma, which is even either being part of or seeing, you know, life-threatening type of situation, but it can cause a traumatic response. Absolutely. And so I think the best thing about you being on today is not only do you have that sex therapy background, but also the trauma background, plus the lived experience background, which kind of makes you a resident. Sex birth uh, in this area. Right? <laughs> so what an honor that is. Thank you. <laughs> but, it, but it's really great that we have you here. And I would highly recommend anyone to go see you when it comes to this. I know I have actually referred clients onto for this particular reason. And so we're just, thank you so much for all of your commentary and education. And I think it's great. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much. So I think we've given a good foundation to start off with this purity culture. And so some takeaways. I think first one is education. I guess my first thought would be educate yourself. You have some education Mm -hmm. in one area regarding religion or, or purity culture. Educate yourself more regarding what's out there so that you can make an informed decision. That's right. Yeah. And be mindful of the source. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a good one. I also think that if, you know, you've got to be open to seeing other perspectives. And if this is really becoming an issue, either uh, from a personal basis and a relationship lens, we do have people here that know what they're doing and what they're talking about to guide you through that, to deconstruct what has happened and to reconstruct um, a different alternative. I'm not gonna say it's right or wrong, but just a different alternative that may be most beneficial to you and your relationship and and your sex life and, and what that looks like going forward. That's so true. There's so much to be explored in reimagining what healthy sex or healthy spirituality looks like while honoring ourselves as sexual beings. Agreed. I think we got some resources that Julie will likely attach. Of course, here, Emily Nagoski's book, uh, maybe that video, uh, we'll, we'll play with that. If not, take a peek at it. It's a little bit of an entertainment on the side. Magnificent sex, probably a good one. Yeah. And, and I think be patient because, I mean, you have a lot of history or experience being in this mindset and this experience, and it's not going to be a fast change. So be patient with yourself. That's right. Any other final thoughts or says before we uh, say goodbye to our audience today? No, I'm just really glad that we're tackling this because we see it more than you'd expect. So Very taboo, yeah, taboo subject. So thank you actually to our listeners who wrote in with their questions. Really appreciate it. And thank you for being transparent and vulnerable. And it is truly appreciated. Mm-hmm. I echo that. Thank you so much for the thought put into these questions and the fact that we've been able to use this as a way to educate and bring in a conversation about purity culture, religion, and sex. 
and how we can work through those issues and you're not alone. Take care, I'll see you next round in Thank that you rabbit so hole. Much. <laughs>